Hello, and welcome back to Automotive, the Automotive Engineering History Podcast. This is the second part of the two-part series on the Datsun Z cars, and so if you haven't heard the first part, uh, make sure to go back and listen to that to get a little more context of where this car was coming from. That first episode ended with the 280ZX Turbo, and the 280ZX was kind of a lackluster car. Originally, the Datsun Z cars were designed to be high-performance, fun, driver-oriented cars, and they started out really strong. However, by the time the 280ZX came out, It was kind of a weird luxury car that had okay power, but was pretty heavy and had a really sloppy suspension. But the turbocharging was moving in the right direction. The rest of the car still wasn't great, but with the turbocharger added, it was making decent horsepower and was starting to become a bit more of a sports car again. This episode is going to pick up right at 1984 with a complete redesign of the Z cars. And this new Z car would be the 300ZX. Specifically, this iteration of the 300ZX is called the Z31. And there were some big changes with this redesign. The naming convention stayed the same. It was called a 300ZX because it had an engine that had a displacement of about 3 liters. But it was an entirely new engine. Up to this point, all Datsun Z cars were powered by straight 6 engines. The 300ZX, however, would be powered by a V6 engine. And in fact, this would be Japan's first mass production V6 engine ever. Although an interesting little side note is there actually was an inline 6 version of the 300ZX and it was called the 200ZR but it was only sold in Japan. And so if you're in America you can only get 300ZXs with V6 engines. However, there were actually a lot of different engines offered with this car, depending on where it was being sold and which generation it was. Specifically, there would be five different engines put into a 300ZX at some point. These included a dual overhead cam straight six, which is the one used in the 200ZR, a turbocharged two-liter single overhead cam V6, a naturally aspirated single overhead cam 3-liter V6, a turbo single overhead cam 3-liter V6, and a naturally aspirated dual overhead cam 3-liter V6, which is, I mean, it's a mess of different engines. And so while generally speaking, the 300ZX was a V6-powered car, there were actually a very wide variety of engines that it had at one point or another. All of the engines, however, would be fuel-injected. Looking at the V6 engine options, the naturally aspirated one produced right around 160 horsepower. 
Not a lot. No, I guess not. Nothing either. The turbocharged version produced right around 200 horsepower, which is pretty healthy. Although all regions outside of the US, the turbo version had a power up to 228 horsepower due to more aggressive cam profiles and less emission restrictions. So the trend continues and America just tends to get less powerful versions of these cars because we had emission regulations. The looks of the Z car also changed a lot with the 300. It became much more of an aggressive wedge shape, and while it looks decent, it fails to have the personality of the original Z cars. It's very much more of a, I don't know, traditional wedged sports car. It's not uh, memorable, I would say. But perhaps that's just me being biased towards the older cars because the 300ZX would sell really well. It would become the second best-selling Z car of all time, and it also offered the highest horsepower available in the Japanese market for a standard production car. So at the time, these were really popular. They had good power, they had some luxury features, in fact the Z was added to the name to kind of represent a more luxury-oriented car, and so people really liked them. Just personally, I don't think they look that good. However, the 300ZX, while definitely an improvement over the 280ZX, was still suffering from some of the same criticism by enthusiasts. They didn't see it as a true sports car. It was a luxury GT car. It was not a purebred, bare-bones driver car. It was, uh, let's give it decent power and throw a bunch of luxury items and we'll call it good. And so while it did sell well, especially to the general public, for those that were really interested in hardcore performance from their Z cars, did not particularly like this Z31 300ZX. And to be fair, it didn't have that good of performance. Well, yes, it was upgraded. It was better. All of the cars that were designed to compete with the Datsun Z cars were now absolutely kicking its butt. Things like the Toyota Supra and the Audi Coupe GT were way faster than this first 300ZX. So really, Datsun was kind of fallen behind in the times with this newest Z car. And this really came to a final point in 1989. By this time, the world was really leaving cruisers like the 300ZX behind. And if Datsun, which was now called Nissan, which is a little side note from now on, this will be called the Nissan 300ZX and all other Z cars from this point were Nissans, and this was just a name change of the company. But regardless, if Nissan wanted to keep the Z car alive, it would need another rework from the ground up. And they would do just that in 1990 with the reworked 300ZX, which was now called the Z32. The Z32, in one phrase, is a tech-heavy car. It featured many, many upgrades and 
most of them through advances in computerized technology. And this was both a blessing and kind of a curse. With the substantial upgrades, this car would become incredible. But if you have technology made in the late 1980s, while it's impressive for the time, it's did its job, it's a little rough around the edges. And you can definitely see that as the 300ZX aged. We'll get into that in just a little bit. This new Z32 was also reworked in the looks department. And it's an interesting look. It's much wider and more round. The pop-up headlights were removed and replaced with very sleek, low-profile headlights. In fact, these extremely low-profile headlights were hard to make and very difficult to design. Usually, if you want headlights that are that low-profile, you use pop-up ones. But those were going out of style, and Nissan was like, we want to have sleek headlights that aren't pop-ups. And so they put a lot of time and a lot of effort creating these very unique, low-profile headlights for the time. They were so good-looking and, well, difficult to make that another car would actually use these exact headlights. Specifically, the Lamborghini Diablo. That's right, if you own a Lamborghini Diablo, the headlights are Nissan headlights. Of course, Lamborghini tries to hide this fact by covering the Nissan name with a strip of carbon fiber, but if you remove that strip, you can clearly see Nissan on your Lamborghini. Overall, I think this Z32 300ZX is a good-looking car. It's a long ways away from the original Z cars, but, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, you want the looks of a car to change with the times, and while I love the 240, and in some ways I kind of wish that modern Z cars just looked like 240s, you know, that's not reasonable. And the 300ZX really does look like a hypercar. It's got those crazy headlights, it's very wide, very sleek, it does look good. It's clearly a very different design mentality than was used on the original Z cars. And not only were the looks changed, but the engine and power was also significantly improved. But more importantly than the power, the suspension and steering systems were also reworked, and that helped to create one of the best handling cars of the time. The front struts were upgraded to A-arms, and a new multi-link system was fitted to the rear of the car. A system was also added that was called High Capacity Actively Controlled Steering, which essentially gave the 300ZX four-wheel steering. The rear wheels would just turn very slightly, only a few degrees at high speeds. And this basically just allowed the car to be much more stable when cornering at higher speeds. In fact, the system was inactive if the car was going under 30 miles per hour. Interestingly, this system was also fitted to the R31 Skyline. 
This entire four-wheel steering system was computer-controlled. It took in all of the data, such as the steering speed, the steering angle, the speed of the car, processed it almost instantaneously, and then determined how much the rear wheels should turn. And well, that doesn't sound impressive these days, because everything in modern cars is computerized. Literally everything. But remember, this was being developed in the late 1980s. That is crazy impressive. Cars themselves were still being designed with paper and pencil. In fact, the Z32 300ZX would be one of the first cars to ever be designed using CAD software, which is computer-aided design. And I really believe that's what allowed this car to be so impressive. Nissan didn't shy away from using all of the cutting-edge technology that they had. It was probably a little bit difficult. You know, they were pushing the bounds. This had never really been done before. But they went through and they worked their asses off and they used all of this technology available to them and they made one hell of a car. To aid in this car being as impressive as it was, the engine was substantially upgraded to a twin-turbo setup. The engine itself was still a 3-liter V6. This engine was given a system called NVTC, or Nissan Variable Timing Control, which controls the timing of the camshaft. Uh, the system is activated by a certain oil pressure and changes the phase of the cam, therefore opening the intake valves a little bit sooner in the engine cycle. This gives a little bit more time for air to be pushed into the engine and creates more power at higher RPMs. It's similar to VTEC in the fact that it only activates at a certain RPM. You don't necessarily have this when you're idling because you don't need a lot of air in the engine when you're idling. It's just sitting there, happy, doing its thing. But when you get into it a little bit and you want some performance, these timing adjustment systems are pretty incredible and can make a big difference while also keeping the drivability of the car. The Z32 was offered in a naturally aspirated version, and this engine pushed out about 222 horsepower, which not bad for a naturally aspirated car. The twin-turbo version, however, which is obviously way cooler, you know, who doesn't want two little turbochargers sitting under the hood? By the way, these turbochargers were set up in a parallel system, so with this, power was pushed to 300 horsepower. intercoolers were also used, so each turbo got its own designated intercooler. And remember that cooler air is denser, and the more dense the air is, the more air can be shoved into the engine. So each one of these turbochargers having its own designated cooling system for the air that it was pushing into the engine just simply aided in more power being made. Simply, more air was able to get into the engine. Zero to 60 times were between five and six seconds, depending on who was doing the testing. Top speed, 155 miles per hour. Although, this was electronically limited, so the car was potentially 
able to go a lot faster than that. And if you didn't get this already, I guess I'm doing a bad job. This car was incredible and extremely impressive, and everybody liked it. It made Car and Driver's top 10 list of cars seven years in a row. This thing was a beast. Interestingly though, Nissan did choose to offer this very performance-oriented car in both a two-seat and four-seat configuration, although the four-seat versions were never turbocharged, which I guess kind of makes sense. An even more insane version of the car was created in extremely limited quantity in 1990. This car came about thanks to a collaboration between Motorsport International of Waco, Texas, and HKS, a Japanese tuning company. These cars were called SR71s. They featured upgrades such as bigger turbochargers and a custom body kit. The SR71s would claim the title of the third fastest production car of the time and only cost $65,000. So, what eventually killed this car? Well, maybe not killed. What led to the eventual discontinuation of this incredibly high-performance car? Well, the price. It kept getting upgraded, and they kept adding more stuff to it, So the price kept going up, and so eventually it wasn't really that very affordable of a sports car, and so people started to look elsewhere if they wanted a high-performance car. Nowadays, Z32 300ZXs are still very cool cars, but like I said earlier, they're filled with 1990s tech and can be a little bit reliable and definitely a pain to work on. If you've ever seen the engine bay of a 300ZX, my god there's a lot going on. Everything is really shoved in there. And so while yes, they have incredible performance, that performance does come a little bit at the cost of reliability and simply ease of maintenance, which is normal for a sports car, I mean there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But there is something to be said for a very simple car and maintaining it versus something like the 300ZX and trying to maintain it. The 300ZX is going to be way harder and cost you a lot more money. Another little interesting thing is that because of all the stuff going on in the 300ZX, it was heavy. It weighed 3,570 pounds, which by 1990 standards was a really heavy car. But despite this, I do want to mention that the 300ZX was an impressive race car as well. It won the GTS class at the 24 Hours of Daytona and the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1994. The car would also win two IMSA titles. Of course, this race version pushed out close to 800 horsepower, and was actually the four-seater version of the car. The reason that the four-seater version was used for automotive competition was the fact that it had a longer wheelbase, which allowed for better weight distribution and therefore created a better handling car. Production of the 300ZX ended in 1997, 
and no Z cars would be offered in the United States again until 2003. By 2003, Nissan would release the next generation of Z car. This would be the 350Z. And again, it was a completely reworked car. It had completely different looks. I do like the looks of it. It's not a bad looking car, but it doesn't look like the 240Z, and it doesn't look like the 300ZX. It's really a different looking car. The engine would be changed. It would actually be a engine that was used in a ton of different Nissan cars. It's the VQ 2.5 liter V6, so it had the same engine configuration, but a different engine. Uh, This engine would be used in things like the Altima and the Infiniti XQ4 Sports Utility. And the 350's version of this engine would be given more aggressive cams and more free-flowing valves to get a little bit more out of this engine. And it's a good engine for the car. It provides 287 horsepower being naturally aspirated, which is very healthy especially because you're going to get very nice throttle response due to it being naturally aspirated, and it has good horsepower. So it's a great engine for a driver-oriented car. This engine also features a high compression ratio of 10.3 to 1. It still has variable valve timing and uses an all-aluminum block. A 6-speed manual or 5-speed automatic transmissions were offered. And let's be honest, you see these cars everywhere. I mean, anyone who wants to get kind of a project car kind of owns one of these cars. They're super common. And the main reason for that is they're cheap. The base price of these when they came out was $26,809, which is a great deal, especially when you consider the fact that this car is only a little bit less powerful than a 911, and the 911 costs two and a half times as much. And as I've mentioned in other episodes, this is something that Japanese auto manufacturers do incredibly well. They offer great performance at a great price by using lots of technology. The 350Z had a 0-60 to time of 5.4 seconds, which is pretty pretty quick. Uh, It handled really well, it had a good weight distribution, and a good power-to-weight ratio. The car weighed 3,332 pounds, giving it a power-to-weight ratio of 11.57. Just a little comparison, the original 240Z had a power-to-weight ratio of 15.24. So, this is a pretty well-powered, fairly lightweight car. Another reason that the car was so liked and so appreciated is because it handled well, and this is thanks to a new design called FM. FM stands for front mid-engine, and the idea behind this is that the engine is still in the front of the car, but it's pushed back a little bit farther so that it's sitting behind the center line of the front wheels. This design keeps things simple because it's still a front-mounted engine, but provides some of the benefits for a mid-mounted engine. The 350Z would also be the first Z car that was never sold as a four-seater. It was only ever sold as a two-seater. 
In 2007, the car was given a power upgrade to over 300 horsepower, but the car would end production just a year later in 2008. In 2009, the next generation was introduced. This was called the 370Z thanks to its 3.7 liter V6. This car was more powerful than the 350Z at 320 horsepower. And on top of that, it was lighter. The 370Z was also smaller overall, having a shorter wheelbase by about 3.9 inches. Much of the body for this 370Z was made out of aluminum, including the doors and A-pillars, to make it as light as possible. The lightweight, with the pretty good power, dropped 0 to 60 times to below the 5 second mark, specifically 4.9 seconds, so just below the 5 second mark. And kind of like all of the Z cars, it did a great job of balancing a daily driving commuter car with a high performance car. These cars definitely have a lot of potential and a lot of punch, but if you want to commute in one, it's not a bad choice. Many people truly believe, including car and driver, that the 370 is the best sports car for the money. It's cheap, has good power, is lightweight, handles well. This is, let's be honest, really back to form to the original 240Z. You could definitely argue that the 350Z was back to form for the 240Z. I wouldn't disagree with that. But the 370Z is really just a next level 350. And so, let's be honest, the Z car was back. It was incredibly high performance for a great price, which I think is really what the Z cars always set out to be. I think they look good, they drive well, yeah, they're kind of everywhere. If you want a unique car, this probably isn't what you're looking for, but they're not going to be unique when they have this much performance and such a low price. They are incredible cars. It has been a while since a Z car was introduced. The 370 came out in 2009. It is now 2021, and the next generation of Z car was just shown off pretty recently. Uh, this next generation is called the Z Proto, I'm assuming for Z prototype, and it is technically a prototype, but Nissan claims that the look is very close to what the production version will also look like. The newest Z car is supposed to look like a modernized 240Z, and it does, but it looks off to me. There seems to be a lot of hype around this car, and a lot of people really like it, and I like it but something just feels off about it. After studying pictures of it and comparing it to different generations, the best explanation I can come up with as to why I don't, I, I don't know, I just feel weird about the looks, is the fact that the front of the Z Proto drops off suddenly instead of coming to a point like it did on the original 240. So this gives it a really blunt look, that I don't really like. All of the body lines suggest that the front of the car should come together in a nice, clean point. But it, but it doesn't. Someone just, just, they decide to just chop off that point, and I think it makes it look awkward. If you start at the rear of the car, 
I'm like, yep, yep, 240, modern 240, looking good, looking good, great, love that hood, love everything. And then you get to the front, and I'm just like, it ends. It ends before it should. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm off. Everybody seems pretty interested in it. And I do like it. But I I just kind of wish that they would make it come to a point instead of this weird chopped off look. But again, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, Let me know what you think of it. Uh, Like I said, it seems like a lot of people do like it. Um, And so if you completely disagree with me, let me know. But if you do agree with me, let me know I'm not the only one. Because, I don't know, it just feels a little bit weird. Uh, the engine for this newest Z car is should be really impressive. It's a 3-liter twin-turbocharged V6. Uh, exact power figures I don't believe are out yet, but I'm expecting a lot of power. Transmissions will be a 6-speed manual or a 7-speed automatic, which is an awesome choice because a manual transmission will allow the car to be seen as a driver's car and give it a leg up over cars like the new Supra, that don't offer manual transmissions. If you want to get the automatic, no judgment, they're probably faster. But if you like slamming through gears, you might pick up the new Z-Proto over something like the new Supra. Uh, Price is supposed to be right around in the 40,000 range, which is reasonable, I would say. Hopefully this newest Z-Car will keep the trend that Z-Cars have had over the past decade or two, of really good driver-oriented car. Everything suggests it will, but it isn't officially out. Um, But my hopes are high, and yeah, I think it should be a nice continuation of this awesome line of cars that really provided performance to everyone thanks to their very reasonable prices. I don't particularly like asking uh, anything of my listeners, but if you are enjoying the podcast... It means a ton if you left a review or a follow. Um, I spend a lot of time researching, editing, recording, and it's nice to know that you are enjoying it. If you do have feedback and something you aren't enjoying, something you'd like me to change, please let me know. I'm always happy to make little adjustments, try to create the best podcast I can. But again, that means a ton, and thank you so much if you have. If you want a little bit more on all of the cars that I cover, you can follow me on social media. My Instagram is automotive.podcast, my Facebook is at automotivepodcast, and my Twitter is at automotivepod. I post little car facts, a little updates, some cool historical photos, so if any of that sounds interesting, you are always welcome to give me a follow. You can also request any episodes that you'd like to hear through the social media. Um, I'm always happy to provide you with an episode that you want to hear. Other than that, thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. I will see you next week.